Uh, this morning, we, uh, the message is entitled, in fact, A Steadfast Anchor, and it is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And we're going to be talking about the promises of God this morning. And when I say, or when I think of the promises of God, uh, we, it, it somewhat resonates with us. But uh, I'll be honest, when I hear the word promise, I, I get a little bit disenchanted by that word uh, nowadays. And partly is because uh, promises, especially in our sphere, in our world, they don't mean much. They just don't mean much. I mean, we're in the political season right now, and we are being inundated by promises from political figures. Now, you know that many, if not the majority of those promises that those political figures make, they are not going to be kept. Now, it would be really easy to be cynical about that. I understand that. Sometimes I think that those promises are made uh, and, and, and they fully intend to keep those promises, but then they get the job and then they realize, oh, I didn't realize how hard this was going to be. I didn't realize it was going to be nearly impossible to keep that uh, promise. And then sometimes I believe those promises are made and not in good faith, that they make them to you know, get your vote and those sorts of things. Now, why am I talking about promises and politics and stuff like that? It's because of this. If you are disenchanted by promises, and if you roll your eyes when you hear somebody make a promise, I get it. But when God makes a promise, we can count on it. We can count on those promises. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. And so we led off last, or we finished off last week in Hebrews uh, chapter 6, uh, starting in uh, verse 1 there and going through verse 12. And we talked about this idea that those who are immature in Christ, uh, those who are not remaining steadfast, those who are not uh, persevering in the faith, that they can fall away and that they can be lost. And it was a very stern warning by the author of Hebrews. But he concluded, the author concluded with this passage that says this in verses 11 and 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish or lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It takes faith and patience to see the promises of God fulfilled. And in fact, some promises that God makes, whether it be in the Old Testament or in the New, some of those faithful followers of Christ, they didn't get to see those promises fulfilled in their time, in while they were living, but they were playing the long game. They were trusting God that he would make good on those promises. And so in that passage, in that stern warning, it said, be careful not to fall away, to continue to persevere, to continue to have faith, continue to follow diligently the gospel that we have shared with you. And be patient and be earnest, be intentional about you following. And those promises will eventually be revealed. And so, in fact, he tells the, the audience to imitate those individuals who were patient in hearing those, those promises. And he was talking about Abraham. He was talking about Noah. He was talking about Moses. He was talking about those heroes of the faith that we see 
in Hebrews 11, which we'll be talking about um, in a few weeks and months later. And so laziness and immaturity can lead us to fall away, and so therefore we must persevere and find patience and faith to obtain those promises that God has made. And so we imitate those who have gone before us. Now, I understand that our enthusiasm can wane when it comes to promises, all right? They can wane, and our energy for completing a task, all right? So if someone makes a promise saying, if you do this, then this will, this will, uh, this will be your reward, if you will, okay? A this, then, that kind of scenario. Sometimes we struggle with that. And so the author says, you follow Christ, you have faith, all right? You persevere, and the award, the reward is waiting for you in the end, right? When we hear that, sometimes our cynicism will lead us to question that to whether it's not whether it's worth it. So here's how we can our confidence in promises can wane. Number one, if we don't trust that the promise will be even upheld. And so if someone comes to you and says, I promise to do this for you if this is accomplished. Well, if you don't trust the person making the promise, it's going to be hard to have confidence and have the energy and the enthusiasm to complete the task, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. If I promise my 16-year-old that if he mows the yard, that I'm going to give him a certain amount of money, all right, to uh, as a reward for mowing that yard, well, if I have not followed through on that promise before, he's not going to have a lot of enthusiasm for completing that, right? He's just not going to have a lot of enthusiasm. So that's one. And the second one, if we feel that the benefits do not outweigh the effort that it takes to complete that task. Or in other words, if I promise my son, I'm going to pay you $10 for mowing the yard. And some of you might think, $10? Well, some of us got, didn't get paid a dime when we were mowing the yard. We still had to do it. Now, I'm going to pay Lucas $10 for mowing that yard. How big is the yard? 10 acres. You get a buck an acre, right? Well, he ain't going to do that. He just ain't going to do that, right? And so our enthusiasm can wane. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, here's the deal. First of all, with God, those pro- you don't have to worry about God going back on his promises, He's going to keep his promises. So that, there's, there, that doesn't factor into the equation. If we know and we trust God, we know that his promises are, are exuding, they're coming from the character of God and who he is, right? We'll talk more about that here in a second. But the second thing is the, the reward in the end. Folks, there is no greater reward that could be promised than to be in the very presence of God for all eternity. And in a sense, that is exactly exactly what God was promising. All right? That's what all these promises boil down to. So we have to ask ourselves two questions, all right, this morning. Here are the two questions. Number one, do we believe that God is able to fulfill promises that he makes? That's the first question. Do we genuinely believe that? And number two, do we believe that the reward is worth the sacrifice because it is a sacrifice to continue to persevere? Because remember, it's coming out of that passage, right? The author is telling them that you must persevere. You must continue on that road. Is it worth the sacrifice? Any of you who know, any of you who have been walking with Christ for any length of period of time know that following Christ is not necessarily an easy road. It can be very difficult. Is the sacrifice worth it? Now, 
Most of us in here would raise our hands and say, absolutely, absolutely. But sometimes I think that our behavior and our actions and our attitude defy, defy that we really believe that, right? Even myself at times, even myself at times. So we're going to investigate that a little bit this morning. So our passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6. It's coming right off the heels of our passage from last week. We're just going to continue on from chapter 6, 13 through 20. Uh, for the next little bit, I'm going to have you, next few weeks while we're in here, while we're filming, I'm going to have you remain seated, um, and that way that we don't have a bunch of heads popping up, right? And we have see, uh, set Paul over here because even if he sits down, his head's in the way. All right. So anyway, here it is. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation." So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning uh, that your word would uh, come alive to us, Father, that it would uh, ring true to us, that it would give us encouragement and hope and assurance uh, that your promises are in fact uh, true, that your, that, your, uh, that your promises do uh, come to fruition, Father. And so we pray that we would uh, be imitators of Christ, imitators of our of those uh, heroes in the faith who have gone before us, that we would patiently and steadily and steadfastly follow Christ, awaiting for those promises to be revealed to us, some which have already occurred, some we are still waiting for. So, Father, be with us this morning. Father, pray that truth uh, be very clear this morning. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to look at this morning are old promises, okay? We're actually going to look at three make three points here. It all involves the same type of promise, but with different emphasis. So the first one is an old promise. You know, the promise that the author is talking about this morning is an old promise. It was the promise that God made to Abraham multiple times, right? And so he says here in the first, in the first part, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So Abraham has already obtained that promise. Well, let's look and see what he means by that, okay? In Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, this is what is written. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And this, by the way, is on the heels of the, uh, the episode where Ab with the, the sacrifice of, of Isaac, right? All right, so right there on the heels of that, and it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So by himself he has sworn, declares the Lord, 
because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, what does that even mean? Well, if you remember the story, Abraham and Sarah, they could not procreate. They couldn't, they couldn't have a child, all right? Fancy word for having a child. They, they couldn't have a child. They were unable to. But God promised Sarah and Abraham that even in their old age, they would be blessed. And God had already made these promises to Abraham, and Abraham and Sarah both like, we're old. You know, how is this going to happen? Well, what happens? God eventually, all right, even after Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters in their own hands, that didn't end, out, end up well, right? But eventually God kept his promise and blessed Sarah and Abraham with a son, all right, with the son Isaac. And then not too long after, what happens? God says, go take your son and sacrifice him, right? All right, go take your son and sacrifice him. So that's where they go and they do it. And, and Abraham's going to do it. And obviously we know the story where the angel says, wait, he stays his hand. He doesn't sacrifice his son and he provides a ram from the thicket, right? And a sacrifice is made. And that's where we have this passage. And that's where this promise is confirmed that you're, because you maintained your faith, because you followed and did not withhold your son from this sacrifice, you are going to be blessed. You are going to be blessed. Remember, it says, you did not withhold your son, your only son. If that sacrifice had been completed, the first son would have been killed. Well, where's that promise going to go? Because he was willing to trust God, even in the face of that sacrifice, God blesses him and says that your numbers will just fill like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. You're just going to have this many generations. And not only that, but they are going to be a blessing and they are going to be a multitude, if you will. Well, it says here in Hebrews that Abraham obtained that promise. And we see that. We see that generations came out of Abraham came out of Abraham, his progeny produced these generations of individuals. We end up seeing all the different tribes and we see Jesus coming from this lineage, if you will, and they were numbered in the sky and on the seashore. And I once uh, was, I was reading something on uh, social media or something like that, a pastor, and he made this point. He said, do not forget that when you look up to one of those stars, those same stars that Abraham was looking at, that, that you are also one of those stars, that you are a part of that promise. And it's not, it's not of anything that you've done. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that you are a part of that promise. And so Abraham obtained that promise on twofold. Number one, his progeny have filled the earth. That's number one. But there's a second promise, and that comes in Christ, is that Abraham had faith. He believed it was counted as righteousness. He didn't know who Jesus was, but he was believing in that promise ahead of time. And Abraham is blessed because of it. And Abraham has obtained that blessing. Our God is a promise-making God. He makes covenants 
with his people. Now, let me just mention one thing about promises, covenants, and oaths. Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, I believe 34, Jesus talks a little bit about not making oaths. All right? About not making oaths. What does he say? Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. He said, don't make any oaths, right? Well, here's the problem. Jesus knows that we are fickle people and we are unable to keep our promises many times, right? Well, as soon as you make an oath, that was a big deal back then. It was a big deal. They did not have contracts, all right? So my wife and I, last Tuesday, we just refinanced our house and, uh, you know, rates are really low right now. So we refinanced our house and everything. And this lady came and she brought this massive envelope and just poof on our table. Our table actually shook after it landed on the table, right? And that whole thing was filled with contracts. And I'm going to tell you, there were so many there. I'm just going to be, we might have just been signing away our children. I have no idea because we were just signing stuff like that. I have carpal tunnel now. All right. I mean, just all these, well, that's what we do, okay? It's sort of like a, a promise, if you will, that we're gonna, you're going to give us the money up front. We promise to pay it back before we're dead, okay? Hopefully. Well, that's not the way they did that. It was their word, and that they would swear. And what we're going to see here in a minute is that when they would swear or make an oath, they would always make an oath on something greater than themselves, Right? They wouldn't make an oath, I swear by myself. Well, that wouldn't make it. That's kind of arrogant, right? So they would always make an oath on something greater. Well, what does it say here? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Right? God is the only one that can do that. God is the only one that can do that. And that's why Jesus is saying, don't make any oaths. You're not God. You're not God. God is God, and God has the right to make oaths because he is going to maintain and keep those promises. The greater the oath, the greater the confidence of the oath in that day. Also, the greater the penalty for breaking that oath. And so this is a big promise by God. But our God is even bigger than the promise that he made. Our God is even bigger than that promise that he made. Abraham, finally believing God and demonstrating through his actions, was enthusiastic and patient in his following God uh, while he was set on that path. Now, did he do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Abraham was not perfect. None of these guys were perfect, all right? We oftentimes like to put these heroes like King David and all these individuals up on a pedestal. Folks, some of these heroes of the faith were right down rotten. Some of the things they did, David did not his life did not end well, all right? It didn't end on like this really high note, if you will, okay? And so they struggled. They had, so they had, they, they, our heroes were, they were living, breathing, broken sinners, but they just had faith and they muddled through and they were patient. But here's the interesting thing. While Abraham believed God, it was counted as righteousness to him. He obtained the promise at that moment Abraham could not, I believe, fully comprehend the depth and the magnitude of the promise that God was making to him. I don't believe that he could even envision that. Like, he probably felt that God was being kind of hyperbolic, you know, in his statement that count the stars, that's the number. Count the, he did not realize 
the magnitude in which God was going to answer that promise. Or how, for that matter. So, the first thing to note here is that God is a promise-keeping God. He is a promise-making God, and He has been making promises from the beginning. So they are old promises. But there's a second thing. They are unchanging promises. They are unchanging. Let's follow down through Hebrews here. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before. So let's go back to this oath idea real quick, okay? When someone would make an oath, they would make it to, for something greater than themselves, right? And we've heard that usually in movies, well, I swear by my mama or something like that. Usually in a Western, I think, or something like that. I swear by my mother or something, you know, or something like that, all right? Shout out to mamas, all right? Greater than the son making the oath, all right? And so the idea is that they would swear by something greater. Well, something that's interesting here is why did God even have to make an oath? Why couldn't God just say, this is what's going to be? Why couldn't he? Even, he absolutely could have done that. But God was regularly making these oaths or these covenants with the people of God. And here's one of the reasons why. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God not only says this is going to happen, he makes an oath upon himself just to, def just to convince, to make it that much more convincing, to make them that much more confident, the fact that God's plan and God's will is unchangeable. If God doesn't make that, doesn't make that oath, he's still going to do what God does. His plans are not changing. The plans that were set out from the foundations of the earth all the way to the consummation of history are not changing. All right? It's not happening. God is God and nothing is going to change. But to convince the heirs of the unchangeableness of his plan, what does he do? He swears an oath. And he swears an oath on himself. He swears an oath on himself. And he says two things here. He guaranteed it with an oath so that two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. When he makes that oath, he's not doing it for himself. He's not making that oath to kind of keep himself accountable. All right, that's sometimes how we make an oath. Well, I've made a promise, so I've got to follow through, right? So we sometimes make a promise not to convince others, but to keep ourselves accountable. God does not need to keep himself accountable by making an oath. He's doing it to convince us, to give us encouragement to keep on being patient and to have that faith. So let's keep on going here. If I were to make a promise and swear by myself or any other broken, fallen vessel, there wouldn't be that same confidence, right? If I promised I was going to do something, I said, well, I swear by myself right? 
or I swear by this, or swear by... It doesn't hold the same value as when God says, I swear by myself that I'm going to fulfill what I say. That I am going to make your children, the generations, fill the sky, fill the beach like the sand on the seashore. It doesn't hold the same weight. And here's why. That word unchangeableness is key. It's not just that God's plan won't change. That's secondary. That's a symptom of God's character. The reason God's plans don't change is because God doesn't change. God doesn't change, therefore his plans don't change. I have, and I, I think I'm probably not the only one, that I have made a promise to my kids, even to my wife. I'm going to do this. And then what happens? Something changes. Something changes. And I don't do it. And we try to justify it, and we say, sorry, boys, I know I made a promise to you, but I can't keep that promise because something changed. And it may have not been so much a circumstance of change, but I have changed. My attitude has changed towards the situation, and I didn't realize that, right? And so me swearing on anything just doesn't do any good because things are fickle. We're fickle. Life is fickle. It doesn't do any good. But God is not fickle. He is constant. He does not change. It is unchangeable. And so his promises are sure. God makes promises to Abraham and others by himself because there is nothing greater than that by which he can swear by, and it doesn't change. Then it says here, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What does that mean? What are those two things? The first one is this. It's God's word. God's word will not change. In fact, he finishes it here by saying, in which it is impossible for God to lie. When God promises something, when God says something, we can trust it. Why? Because it's true. And when we say God's when God's word, when we say that he doesn't lie, we don't just mean the words coming out of his mouth or a spokesperson of his. We mean his words. We can trust these words that he has shared. This entire book is a promise of God to his people. We can trust this. And the second is his oath. Number one, his word, he's not going to lie. And number two, his oaths, he will not break. They are two unchangeable things that we can trust. So why are these two things unchangeable? Well, we've already said that. It's because of God. It's because God is unchangeable. His word isn't going to change because God's not going to change. His oath is not going to change because God is not going to change. When we make an oath according to something greater than ourselves, the recipient has the confidence in the object of the oath more so than the person of the oath. Catch that again, okay? In the Old Testament, when an Old Testament character would make an oath on something, either in a dispute or something like that, they would always make an oath basing it on something greater than themselves because the recipient of that oath has more confidence in what bears the oath, not the person making the oath, all right? So if I could put in that old Western thing, well, I swear by my mama, right? Well, I may not trust you, but I trust your mama. Because if you don't follow through, she's going to whoop you. It's going to go through all the town, right? You get the idea there. And so that's why they would swear on something greater than themselves. Because the recipient would trust that object more than they would the person who is administering the oath. Well, with God, God just swears by himself. Why? Because there is nothing greater. What is God gonna, what, what's God going to swear by? 
The moon, it changes. The sun, it changes. He swears by himself. God's promises will be fulfilled. They will be answered. Because of this confidence, we can have encouragement and hope, which leads us to this last point, which is a little bit different. The way this author describes this is a little bit different. It's ultimately that we have old promises made. We have these promises which are unchanging, but they're not just unchanging. They are also sealed. These promises are sealed, and they are sealed by Christ. Our hope is ultimately in the one who secured and sealed the promise. He finishes up his passage by saying this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now in the past, or in the Old Testament, what we see is that especially on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, they would go in to that area behind the curtain and they would atone, if you will, not with their lives, but they would atone on that Day of Atonement for the sin of the people, okay? But then they would come out, right? And then that high priest would eventually die. And what would happen in the line of Levites? Another high priest would come out. So that line of Levites was never forever. It just kept, and eventually it ends, right? So there's, an, there's something about this line of Melchizedek, which we've already talked about a little bit. Because Christ, our hope, has now entered as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The promises of God and our hope that they will be accomplished are sealed by the blood of Christ. We do not need another high priest. Christ is from the order of Melchizedek, and we're going to talk about what that means here in a second. I'm going to remind you of that. But the idea here is that Christ is our great high priest who has gone behind the curtain. He has made atonement the final time. It doesn't need to happen again because Christ has accomplished that. He is our high priest and he is our high priest forever, forever. There doesn't need to be another high priest. We're not waiting for another high priest from the line of the Levites to come up because Christ is our high priest from the line, if you will, of Melchizedek. And in fact, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I love this passage. Chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All of these promises, because of Christ, even the promises that God made to Abraham, are ultimately sealed in Jesus. That's where they are sealed. Now, did Abraham see this? No, he had to wait. He saw the beginning of that promise through Isaac and his grandkids, if you will, as they came. But he didn't see the total culmination. We haven't seen it yet. We have not seen that yet. But Christ is sealing that. So let's go back to Melchizedek just real quick before we close here. Melchizedek was a priest and king of Salem. 
All right? That's what he was. He was a priest and king. We only see him twice in the Old Testament. We see him actually more in the New Testament than we see him in the Old Testament. But he was a priest and a king of Salem. All right? And he was not your typical priest. He was not a Levite uh, that would die and then be replaced. He was a perpetual priest. All right? He just, he was. The line of Melchizedek would last forever. And not because of his progeny, but because of Jesus. Jesus is our final high priest in the line of Melchizedek, and he is forever. And so Jesus is what makes that perpetual. He was a perpetual priest in a sense because of Christ. And because of this, he is considered greater than the priests of the Levites. And so if we go back to the Old Testament, what we see is that Abraham actually had to give a tenth to the priest, to Melchizedek, this king and priest of Salem. And so Melchizedek was considered greater than all those other Levite priests. Christ is in the line of Melchizedek because Jesus too is a perpetual priest, a priest forever. His role has no end. When Christ was raised from the dead, they weren't going to anoint any other priests to do what Christ has done because Christ had already accomplished that. Christ continues to be our high priest and he continues to advocate on our behalf. Christ, when he entered the Holy of Holies, that was the last time. All right, And what I mean by entering the Holy of Holies, when he died, all right, when he died, was buried, was raised, and now is seated at the right hand of God, you can't get any closer to the presence of God than that. Those Levite high priests, what were they doing? They were going behind a curtain into the Holy of Holies, making sacrifice one day a year. What's Christ doing? Well, he's the Son of God, the Lamb of God, sitting next to the God of heaven, advocating on us for us on our behalf, all right, with his blood. There is no one greater. Christ is our sure and steadfast anchor. Our hope is not in an old covenant and old covenant sacrifices that point to Jesus. All those sacrifices, they all pointed to Jesus. But that's not where our hope lies in those promises that point to Jesus. Our hope is the real deal. He's the real thing. He's the answer to all of those promises. That's where our hope is lying. So how do we answer the two questions that we asked in the beginning? Do we believe that God is able to fulfill the promises that he makes? And number two, do we believe that the reward is worth the sacrifice? Or if I could ask it this way, do we have confidence in God, in the person of God, in the power and the character of God? And do we believe that the reward, the very presence of God for all eternity is worth sacrificing everything? Do we believe that? When we demonstrate a lack of faith or when we demonstrate an apathy for growing in Christ, what we are demonstrating is likely one of two things. That number one, we don't believe God and His promises. Now, we may not say it like that, but when we lack faith or when we are apathetic to growing in Christ, oftentimes it is because we don't genuinely believe God and His promises and that they are true, or number two, that we don't believe that the reward of Jesus is enough to put forth that effort and to make that sacrifice in persevering, right? So do we believe God in this way? 
Do we believe Christ? If we do believe things, then we're not going to fail in pursuing Christ. I mean, here's the thing. If we believe that every promise that God has made is true and that he has sealed it with Christ and the blood of Christ, then we will not fail in pursuing Christ and persevering for Christ forever, all right? For our life while we're here. We are not going to fail in doing that. We are going to... Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be sinless. What I mean is that we are going to continue on this track chasing after Jesus, and we're not going to let the world take prominence over Christ. The world did not give its life for you, that you might be secured with God forever, that you might be reconciled. The world didn't do that. Christ did that. Christ is the one who entered the Holy of Holies once and for all. Christ is the great high priest. Not your family, not your friends, not your job, not your employer, none of that. Anything and everything that we put above God, none of them suffice for what Christ has done for us. If we believe that God is faithful in answering his promises, we will not fail in pursuing and persevering with enthusiasm and consistency. We will sacrifice our time. We'll sacrifice our energy. We will be reading and investing in God's word. We'll be investing our lives in prayer, investing in worship, investing in fellowship. We'll invest love for our neighbor and for our enemy. And we will avoid and even run away from these fickle fads of the world that promise everything but deliver on nothing. So here's my encouragement to you, okay? Is that God has made these promises. They're old promises. They're unchanging promises. And they have been sealed by Christ. And because of that, we have the encouragement and the confidence to chase after that, knowing that God will keep and maintain those promises. He swore he would on his self. He will not fail because God does not lie. So let us not be sluggish and lazy in our pursuit of Christ. Let's have a new energy for it. Now, it is true that throughout life, our energies change. They do change throughout life. They look different. I can tell you, my energy towards pursuing Christ in my 20s looks different than it did in my 30s than it does now in my 40s. And I'm sure it will be different when I'm 50, 60, 70, 80. 150 is what I'm planning. But anyway, that's another story. The idea here is it's going to change, all right? But by God's grace, there will still be energy. There will still be energy. So let us not lose hope because our hope is in Christ. Let us not lose confidence because our, our confidence is in a God that doesn't change. It's amazing the types of things that we put our confidence in, and every one of those things can go up and down just at a whim, right? I mean, here's the thing. I asked my wife last night, is it going to rain tonight? And she'll say, no, nah, it doesn't say so. And what happens? Thunderstorm. This wasn't last night. But I mean, seriously, well, the weather channel's not real accurate, right? 
But sometimes we put our confidence more in the weather channel than we do God. And God does not change. So let us chase after that with abandon and just seek Christ with all that we are, with all intentionality, all earnestness, and demonstrate our confidence in the promises of God and the one who made them. And that takes me back to this moment in Abraham's life. I want you to envision this because this is where he's writing from. Imagine Abraham with his only son tied up on that altar and him getting ready to plunge a knife into his, the child of promise, if you will. Imagine that and that someone like Abraham would have the confidence. And remember, Abraham had to wait decades for this child to be born. And now God is going to, is asking him to sacrifice his only son. What kind of confidence and faith does it take to have in God to be able to do that? Folks, I hope that I would have that kind of confidence in God. I don't know. I don't know. But put yourself in Abraham's shoes and see whether or not you would have that confidence in God to be able to make that kind of sacrifice. But that's the kind of confidence that God requires of us every day every day to keep on getting up and pursuing with confidence, consistency, enthusiasm, and faith. But we are unable to do that because we have a great high priest who has gone before us. And that is where our hope lies. Not in the will of man, but in the will of God that has been fulfilled in Christ.